Amen. You can grab a seat. Glad you're here. My name is Ben, one of the pastors. Today we're going to be in 1 John 5 as we finish 1 John, finally. Not finally, finally. You know, 1 John is one of those that's a little harder to preach. So actually, I'm a little bit saying finally. Uh, God forgive me. That seems like heresy to say. But we are finishing 1 John today. And uh, as I've kind of considered 1 John and been preaching uh, through it, there's a part of me that knows that it hasn't been very Christmassy uh, with the sermons uh, this year. And I don't know if you care about that, but in my own head, I have this like spectral old woman that's like telling me how things should be done in church. Um, and like what we're talking about is still Christmas because we're talking a lot about Jesus and we're bringing all these thoughts together. And, and we're talking about Jesus in a way that exalts him and that uh, connects to the fact that he came to be with us. Uh, but this old lady in my head is still just shaking her head and going but it's not Christmas. You're not talking about Christmas enough. Um, and I don't know if she's demonic or not. Maybe she's a, a conscience, like a little angel or something. But I know that we haven't talked a lot about Christmas. Today we're going to adjust that slightly and talk some about Christmas. Because of the way that it all kind of has come together, uh, you know, we're committed to preaching through Scripture because we want to know what the Scripture says. And we don't want to cherry pick topics based on what we think is most important for people to hear. We want God to speak to us. And when you just preach through Scripture, you, you submit to God's calendar of topics for your church. And uh, I think that's really important. But you do get days that feel kind of awkward or, or timing that maybe feels a little bit awkward. And, and the Advent stuff that we're talking about, I think in most people's minds is just joy. Like it's just fun. It's just very approachable. Maybe it's like the kids coming and doing their song earlier. If you were here in time to see that, they did that early so that they could go and let the kids go. But the children that came up and did their like little song presentation, it's always a fantastic moment, but I also know that it's not like a moment people expect to be like a holy moment, you know, like it's not an intense moment because they've got chubby cheeks. Like it can't be that intense. They're just chubby, right? You want to squeeze them. You don't want to like, I don't know, take them too seriously. They're singing about things that are important, but they're doing it in kind of a distracted way or like one kid is real scared and he doesn't really want to look and, you know, everything is just fun and funny when you have the little kids up here. And I think that feels like Christmas is very approachable. But we also had that video about missions in, in the other parts of the world. Did you watch that? That was intense. Did that feel like Christmas to you? That was really heavy. And it wasn't just heavy in a way that you think about like sad things other places. I've been very clear. Rachel and I give to causes so that we can guilt-free just skip the ad. When they have the ad that comes up and says, like, please donate to whatever, we don't, like, watch those ads. We will give money so that we don't have to watch those ads because they bum us out. Like, I, don't, I know that the world is broken. Just take my money and leave me alone, please, you know. The video that we just watched was talking about something that was really heavy. But it talked about that heavy thing in a way that implied that you should be involved. Like it wasn't this distant thing about some horrible situation on some other part of the world where you, you see it in the news and you get sad for those people. And maybe there's some sort of relief fund or something you can give to. But in general, you know, it doesn't have a lot to do with your life. But that video in scripture seems to indicate that, that it actually does have a lot to do with every individual Christian, regardless of where they are or even their maturity level. 
to be involved with proclaiming Christ all over the world. It's kind of a study in contrasts. You have that video and you have chubby kids singing a song or not singing and just getting distracted and inviting you to enjoy just silly kids. Christmas has a little bit of that feel to it. When we talk about Christmas, we talk about the fact that Jesus came to be with us. And we think of Jesus coming to be with us the way that Christians think of it. We think of it as a baby in a manger or a baby being held by a very young new mother. That's very approachable. Many of you have either experienced that or seen that. And you think about a little baby as something that you can just come and touch. But if you think about God's presence coming to be with people, and you're not a Christian, meaning that this is um, before the time of Christ. This is something, you're a follower of God, but you haven't yet seen Jesus come. So if you're just an Old Testament follower of God, and you think about Jesus coming to be with us, you don't think about little babies and young ladies. What do you think about? Well, in Hebrews 12, which is a New Testament book, but talks about the Old Testament, he says, when God came to be with the people to give them the law, after he takes the people out of Egypt and brings them to be in his presence, it says, you've not come to what may be touched. You've come to a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned indeed. So terrifying was the sight of God's presence before the people of Israel that even Moses said, I tremble with fear. Think about another place where Job, a man who went through the worst possible situation, spent 38 chapters arguing with his friends and crying out to God for some kind of reason, some kind of response to why his life just immediately was a disaster scene. And finally, in, in Job 38, God responds. And how does God's presence come to be with Job? Well, it says in, in verse 1 of Job 38, Then the Lord answered Job, Out of the whirlwind. Are you somebody that's ever been in a place with tornadoes? Rachel's family in Clarksville, Tennessee, they just had tornadoes come through. And there are scenes of this massive cloud with the cone shape coming down to the earth and debris. The whirlwind is not something to approach. And God speaks in, out of the whirlwind to Job and says, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge, dressed for action like a man? I will question you and you make it known to me. It's two chapters before Job can respond. And Job in, in verse 4 of Job 40 says, Behold, I'm of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken and, and I will not answer. Twice but I will proceed no further. There's another, maybe one of the more, most famous places in Scripture where somebody's around the presence of God. It's this guy, Isaiah. And like Job and Moses, Isaiah is not a bad guy. He's a good guy. Like Isaiah is a guy you wish you would be like. Isaiah was a hero of the faith for people in his generation. And yet, even that hero of the faith, as he stands in the presence of God, says, he, he walks into God's presence in the temple. It's a vision. It's a reality. The foundations of the thresholds of the temple, gosh, I wish we could dig into that, shook at the voice of him who called. Not even in, in the Lord, just one of his angels that's growing around calling out, holy, holy, holy. And the house is filled with smoke. And Isaiah says, 
Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What am I talking about? I'm trying to have you see the magnitude of Christmas. I'm trying to have you see that when we talk about Christmas, we don't just talk about light in a dark place. We also talk about the holiness of God coming to be with a fragile fallen people. What Isaiah experienced is what Mary experienced when she held that tiny little baby. While you can imagine screaming in fear with Isaiah, you can't really imagine screaming in fear with Mary, can you? I don't know. Maybe you've seen a scary baby. Usually babies are really sweet. When you see a baby, most people draw closer. They don't go further. (laughs) It's like a sitcom scenario where somebody has a baby so ugly that you're trying to figure out how socially to deal with the situation. Most of us like babies and want to be closer to them. A scary baby, the only way I can like justify that phrase is when, when Rachel and I, like you have your first kid and the hospital's like, all right, See you later, you know, time to go. And you're going from a place with like heart monitors and nurses and professionals to like yourselves at a crappy apartment. And like, that's now your place and you're going to have to take care of this baby. That's a scary baby, but it's still a sweet baby. Like you still like holding that little baby. And at Christmas, we see God as baby. Holy, 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 shake the thresholds of the temple as baby. How do these things come together? How do you see the holiness of God and the love of God? How is he that high and yet that approachable? Well, John, as he finishes his letter, brings together those things by talking about being close to the Lord, being his, being loved by him, knowing him, having an unshakable confidence that you're his, while at the same time fearing the holy God. Because he still, as he threads all of this confidence and assurance into the heart of the Christian, brings the constant warning. Here's how he finishes the book. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, what what is that? We'll talk about that. He shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that don't lead to death... There is sin that leads to death. I don't say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there's sin that does not lead to death. Verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him. And the evil one does not touch him. We know that we're from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we're in him who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Last sentence of the whole book. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. What? I don't know, like you're at church, I'm preaching, you know, there's only so many minutes and then you just get to leave. So maybe you're just enduring this. But if you are reading that with me, do you understand how those verses go together? Does anybody really see it coming that he would have this big, tremendous, encouraging thing about how the world is not going to overcome you and how the Lord is able to keep you and how he is the true God and he's eternal Christ and he's the love of the world. And then little children, keep yourselves from idols. And he's out into the, the book. 
Any other New Testament book that you read, they usually end with some kind of like greeting or joy or like doxology. And here he ends with a warning that doesn't seem to connect to what he's been talking about. But it does. You just have to read it. He's talking about the fact that it's possible for you to sin in a way that you die. He talks about the fact, and this is crazy, that there's sin that you can do that will not lead to death. But then he has this category, this idea, this warning about something, this sin that will actually lead you to death. And then he finishes by saying, little children, keep yourselves from idols. What he's warning about is what we've always called in the church apostasy. There's a newer thing, maybe, a newer label, maybe, where people talk about deconstruction or they have deconstructed their faith. And it just means that they've apostatized, that they've given up on the faith, they've left it. And yes, it's a person and it's a story and it's more complicated than just a label, but to give it a different label than apostasy kind of maybe obscures the situation. Apostasy is an old word. It has a Greek sound to it because it comes from the Greek. From the very beginning, Christians have had this Temptation In the very beginning, John, one of the apostles of Jesus, addresses that temptation. Because in all the magnitude of the glory of God, in his holiness and in his closeness, in his majesty and in his softness, his, his gentle and lowliness, there's one thing that can kill everything. And John's warning you about it. He's saying, if you will repent of your sin, of, of your idols... You're going to live, but if you don't, you'll die. I, I want us to see that this Christmas. And again, the old lady in the back of my mind is just shaking her head through her glasses. By the way, it's not my mother. It's this, I think it's a lady named Deborah that has kind of like had that in my head. I know a lady named Deborah, and I think that's who it is. But anyway, the, that lady is shaking her head like you're talking about idols. You need to be talking about like shepherds or something. But I'm telling you, this is what Christmas is about. If you don't... See your idol, it can lead you to, to death. So Hebrews, which we talked about earlier, if you ever actually read that book of the New Testament, is, is kind of famous for a theme that's in there that has to do with apostasy. There are several places in the book of Hebrews that sound like this. Hebrews 3, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened have your heart hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As, he is, as it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. What's he warning of? He's saying, take care. It's possible for you to think you're a Christian, to be hanging out with the Christians, to, to be around the church, and yet to choose to walk away. It's possible for you to harden your heart in such a way that you decide to leave. And that's what he's talking about when he talks about a sin that leads to death. You know, I say sin that leads to death, and maybe in your head that conjures up this idea, whether it's a fleshed out theology that you actually know about or something you just sort of heard from pop culture about the idea of like a mortal sin. A sin that's like a real sin, a sin that's like a bad sin, a mortal sin, meaning that it will kill you. And we have the seven deadly sins. Why are they deadly? Because they'll make you dead. They'll kill you. The seven deadly sins. What are they? I don't know, but don't do them. You'll be dead. 
Well, a deadly sin is this idea, and it's not a, a Christian theology that we would support, but it's the idea that there are certain sins that are like really bad. And if you put on one, your foot on one of those certain sins, then we got to go to a whole different course for treatment. Well, yeah, there's bad sins, but also like sin is bad. When we talk about deadly sin, we're talking about just sin. And yet when we talk about sin that might actually kill you, a sin that doesn't lead to death and sin that leads to death, it can be a temptation to think to yourself, well, I bet I've done one of those really bad sins. We have an enemy that's called the accuser because he's, he's constantly trying to undercut your unshakable confidence that the Lord is yours and you're his. So when I introduce a topic like this, it's, it's a temptation to think that there might be some category of sin that you might have accidentally slipped into or maybe on purpose slipped into. And that that category of sin means give up on Jesus because you cannot be forgiven. Is that possible? Is it possible, or is John or Hebrews or parts of the Bible saying that you can have a sin you commit that is so bad that while God may have entertained forgiveness for some things that you've done, for that one, you're done. Okay, well, let's, let's ask scripture about that. The seven deadly sins that are described by some sort of people in the faith is some of them, uh, one, one, two of them. One is called wrath and one is called lust. Well, Jesus talks about those in the Sermon on the Mount. Is it possible that having done those things, you, you're completely disqualified from the possibility of grace? Well, no. Read your Bibles. In the Old Testament, we have really good examples of people that were bad examples. This guy, David, King David, i.e. the one that Jesus is like in his name. That King David, we talk about this a lot, but he killed a guy and took his wife because he wanted her sexually. Wrath, lust, and yet God forgave David. Another of the deadly sins are envy and pride. Well, unless the apostle Paul was somehow different than every other Pharisee. So before the Apostle Paul, who wrote a lot of the New Testament, was a Christian, he was a Pharisee, meaning he was one of this Jewish class of law experts. And he hated the church. He hated the church so much that he was actually one who was involved in the early persecutions. He was standing there when the very first Christian was killed. Stephen was martyred. And he was walking around breathing threats against the church. It's hard to know exactly what was in his heart, but we can make a little bit of a guess if he's a Pharisee like the other Pharisees that we read about in every page of the Gospels. If he's like those Pharisees, then he hates Christ out of a mixture of envy and pride. If that's the case, then he took envy and pride to the level of killing Christians. And it was in that murderous rage that God found him, forgave him, and made him an apostle. So are those disqualifying sins? Well, they're bad. Yeah, sin is bad. But God is so great in his love that he can forgive those. Peter famously denied Jesus. Think about that. If you ever read uh, Dante, and Dante was this big medieval Christian that wrote what's called the, the Divine Comedy. And Dante's Inferno is where he imagines himself being kind of led through hell. And there are these levels to hell. And again, it's kind of this idea that some sin is worse than other sin. The bottom, the worst level of hell 
It goes from flames to just ice. It's this place that is cold and it's complete rejection of God. And he puts in that final level of hell, Judas, the betrayer of Christ. Well, when you read through the gospel stories, the difference between Peter and Judas is kind of scary small. Yeah, Judas sells Christ to the people that are going to then kill him. But Peter also, in the face of Jesus' like worst moment, in his hardest time when he needs his supporters, denies Jesus loudly and with cursing. Fast forward to later in the New Testament and you have Peter who, he corrupts the gospel in this controversy in Galatia with the Judaizers. Am I saying that we're better than Peter or that Peter's some really bad dude? No. No. But I am saying that whatever these sins are that that the enemy may accuse you that they're like somehow beyond the love of God or beyond the possibility of Christ's forgiveness, you need to deny that. God can forgive even the really, really bad sins. In fact, if scripture is true, then all these sins are the really bad sins. And yet God's love is great enough that he can and will forgive. So what is it possible that we mean when we talk about a sin that's going to lead to death? A sin that's going to be something that really does damn you, that God can't just forgive. Well, the one sin that he won't forgive is the sin that you won't ask forgiveness for. The one sin that that will damn you is the sin you don't repent of. A guy named Alfred Plummer, a New Testament scholar, he's passed now, but he says, it's possible to close the heart against the influences of God's spirit so obstinately and so persistently that repentance becomes a moral impossibility. He's saying that it's possible to choose something else over God so consistently and so fully that in the final account, you would rather have that and hell than have heaven and God. What is that thing? Well, that's what the Bible talks about as an idol. And if you say to yourself, well, I don't have any idols. I don't worship any little images in my home. Well, that's not really what we're talking about. We're talking about anything that you would choose outside of or instead of God. And the Bible is very clear that you don't really have a choice in the matter of if you worship. You have a choice in the matter of what you worship. But everyone is going to worship something. It will either be the holy God or it will be something else. And that something else is the big title, the big, the big category that we label idols. My kids and I are going through an, an Advent calendar. Advent, uh, the, the coming of Jesus. We, we talk about this season is Advent season. We have our Advent candles and some people have Advent calendars. And what we have is this, uh, it's this big book and you open it up. And when you open it up, this, this paper tree folds out. It's like a pop-up Christmas tree. And all over the pages, it's got little panels for each day. And on that day, you pull open the panel and you pull out a little cardboard ornament and you hang it on the tree. And she has a little book. The lady that wrote this book, her name is Ann Voskamp, she has a little book for each day. And you read the Advent sort of devotional for that day that represents that little ornament. And you do it with your family and you talk about the meaning of Christmas. It's great. Well, the one from last night, in it, she says, Did you know that every person bows down to something? If you don't bow down to the real God, you will bow down to a fake God. 
She's saying in language that anybody can understand exactly what John and the rest of Scripture says. There is something that can kill you. And it doesn't mean that the grace of God somehow has a limit. There is something that you might choose instead of him. And it can be a lot of different things. It's kind of on you. What's your poison? What we have to do is walk away from that thing and choose God instead. God forbid that we choose that thing and have an ultimate moment of rejection of him. Man, if you will turn, you will live. But if you won't turn, you will die. That's where we get the other verses in here that talk about how eventually you will say no to some sin if you are a Christian. The possibility of, of the continuing of sin because of addiction and stuff that goes on in your life. Yeah, no judgments. But at the same time, what Scripture says is clear. There's going to be a final choice that you're going to make between that thing and God. And if you really are His, you're going to choose Him. But if you're not... And if you will repent, you will live. But if you won't, you'll die. But if you will, because if you're like me, there's a part of you that says, well, yeah, man, of course I want heaven. I don't want hell. Of course I want God. I don't want my addiction. But I'm looking at some history here, and honestly, my decider is kind of broken. Like when it comes to make, making a commitment for the Lord and a commitment against things that he hates, my track record is spotty at best. If I say that I choose him and I really think that I mean it, what assurance do I have that there will be any way for me to trust that God will forgive me when I'm constantly screwing this thing up? Well, remember what he said right in the middle there when he talked about how in Christ he will keep you. We know that anyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God, Jesus, protects him and the evil one doesn't touch him. The New Testament is filled with things exactly like that assurance, like in the book of Jude, which is just one chapter. So you say Jude 24 and 25. You don't mean chapter 24 and 25. You mean verse 24 and 25. And in Jude 24 and 25, he says this, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. You're saying to yourself, I don't know how I can commit to Christianity. I'm constantly stumbling. Well, yeah. He's going to be glorified by your salvation, not because you have walked so triumphantly from hell into heaven, but because though stumbling, he is able to keep you from stumbling and then to present you blameless before the presence of God's glory with great joy. What is he saying? He's promising to give you an Isaiah experience without the woe is me. To bring you into the presence of God and yet instead of trying to pull out your hair because you're being undone by the terrible majesty of the Holy One, you are in fact blameless and able to stand before the Holy One. That you're able to stand before the presence of His glory with great joy. That's what heaven is. Heaven is Christmas. Heaven is the meeting of these two ideas of God the Holy One and God the Loving One. God the One that's like little baby flesh that wants to be held and hold you. And God, the Holy One, who shakes mountains with his mere presence. He's able to present you in the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, to him be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time now and forever. Amen. So can we understand this gospel? Can we understand this offer and this warning brought together? 
Do you understand how John can finish his whole book by saying, little children, keep yourselves from idols, from those things that you might choose over him instead of him in the final moment of choice? No, instead we want to choose him and we want to start living according to his will. That does mean you need to say no to things that God forbids. Yeah, we say you can be forgiven of sin and we mean it, but we also mean don't trifle with it because sin is deceitful. And while there's no sin in the world you would choose over uh, heaven and you would choose hell instead of heaven, of course not. Hell is awful. Heaven is wonderful. But sin is deceitful. Nobody would do a timeshare if you really understood what it was. But when you're in the room, they're deceitful. And they say things that you kind of think might make sense. You don't really realize that you'll die one day and your kids will be slated with this legal obligation to pay for like a weekend in Hilton Head or whatever. It, it's, it's a deceitful situation. Sin is deceitful. And it hardens your heart to a point where you decide that you will choose hell over heaven. It casts a whole new light on the concept of hell where we can agree with Lewis and others who have talked about how hell is locked from the inside. No, today, today, right now, today, you need your will to change to be like his will. You need a love that woos you. You need a holiness that terrifies you. You need a Christmas moment where God comes to be with you you. And, and if that God is with you, he's able to keep you from stumbling. He's able to present you blameless for the presence of his glory with great joy. And as we pray constantly, he, he's, he's conforming our heart to his will. There's a part that we skipped that I want to go back to really quick. 1 John 5, uh, 14, 15 says, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we have anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. What? He's saying that you're going to, as you pray, watch as the, the holiness of God continues to change your heart and the love of God continues to melt and woo your heart, that you start to change and want what he wants and not want what he doesn't want. A guy named John Stott said it this way. He said, prayer is not a convenient device for making our will impose itself on God as though we're going to somehow bend his will to ours. But prayer is instead the prescribed way, the way that's been given of taking our will down, of subordinating our will to God's. It is by prayer that we seek God's will, that we embrace it and align ourselves with it. Every true prayer is a variation of the theme, thy will be done. Oh, how beautiful. <laughs> how perfect. Christmas is the perfect time for seeing if you have idols in your life because Christmas is a moment where you go, I'm going to be happy. Well, why? What about Christmas is going to make you happy? Is it stuff? Is it family? Is it relationships? Is it time off? Is it booze? What is it? What, what is the thing about Christmas that's going to make it just great? Ask yourself that. And then ask yourself after Christmas, what was it about Christmas that let you down? That's going to be a great way to try and get into your own heart and see where are your idols. Calvin the Reformer said that our hearts are idol factories. So it's not where or, or, or if, it's where, it's what. And how do we start replacing those things and putting God back in the middle of it? Well, you remember on Christmas the love that God has for you. You think about the holy God who became man, 
that he might live and then die to bring you into his presence with great joy, blameless forever and ever and ever. Oh man, that that love would really capture you. That it would woo you away from anything else. I pray that it would this morning. And if you're having trouble, as you're thinking through this, can, can I talk to you about it? I'd love to. My week is wide open for people that want to have gospel conversations, whether you're a Christian or not. But if that's weird, then who do you know? Who can you talk to? Don't let this morning and don't let these thoughts go away. Capture them. Work on them. Figure out what they mean and, and take them to a, a realization moment, a, a true commitment moment in Christ. Let's pray. Lord and Heavenly Father, I pray that Christmas would happen. Lord, you've come. It's, it's a reality. You, you came and lived among us, died, and then rose from the grave that you might make a way for our sin to be paid for and your holiness to be written on sinful people. That has happened, but have we accepted it? In your teaching, as you walked on the earth, you were really clear that there is a place called hell. There is a final rejection of that love and grace. Lord, will you please give us the, the incredible joy of knowing that, that we do know you. And it may feel like cutting off our own arm or gouging out our own eye to choose you over this other thing that we love. But Lord, will you help us to do it? And in doing it, Father, and we're talking about such heavy things, but in doing it, will you give us great joy? Will you give us the kind of joy that makes us want to leave our homes and go and tell others about you? Will you give us the kind of joy that is joyful and sacrificing so that we have a little extra to give to support people that you've called to go all over the world and share about this great grace? Lord, we pray that you would do these things and that you would glorify your name in this people. We love you, sir. We pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.